Hi, my name is Melanie Goldie. I'm the COO and CFO at Tomorrow Life Sciences. To me, femtech is the expanding category of tech-driven products and services serving the vast opportunities in women's health. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and in today's episode, I interview Melanie Goldie, the COO and CFO of Tomorrow Life Sciences. Tomorrow Life Sciences is a fertility tech company bringing safety, security, and automation to the long-term care and storage of frozen eggs and embryos. Sometimes it may appear that humanity is so technologically advanced. We put a man on the moon, we decoded the human genome, we replace human hearts, but as is often the case when it comes to women's health, we are so behind in innovation. Tomorrow's technology is innovating the cold freezers and the marker-labeled tubes used when storing women's precious eggs and embryos. These coolers have such a high risk of failure between the temperature dropping every time a person opens up the freezer and the ability for the labeling written in Sharpie to be misread or worse, accidentally wiped off. Sometimes you don't need to be the inventor of the cure for cancer. Instead, to safeguard the world's most precious cells for life, you just need to make a smarter freezer system. To learn more, check out their website at tomorrow.org. That's tomorrow, T-M-R-W dot org. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Melanie, welcome to the show. Hey, Brittany, thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to have you. Um, I can't quite uh, recall the time we met, but it was an event and someone was like, Britt, you have to know Melanie. And then I looked into <laughs> what you're doing and I was like, you are right. I do have to know her. <laughs> yeah, I think we met a, a few months ago at another event. And um, I have to say the feeling was mutual, Brittany. I was like, I must have this woman in my life. So I'm glad we could uh, do this together. <laughs> Yes, definitely. Well, uh, we always love to kick off our podcast with learning more about our guests. We want to know your background, where are you from, what did you study, and how did you end up here? Yeah, cool. Um, so I currently live in New York, but I actually grew up on the West Coast out uh, in Beaverton, Oregon, which many people may know as uh, the place that Nike is headquartered. Uh, but what many people may not know is that there's a lot of tech companies and semiconductors out there, uh, companies out there as well. So I grew up down the street from the Intel headquarters and a bunch of other uh, really cool, disruptive, innovative companies. And I think it was very early on that I started to get really interested in technology. Um, my dad actually fueled that interest because he was a tech geek and started his own company. He learned how to program and created this um, point of sale program for small businesses. And that's what he did to make a living. And so I think from a very early age, I had this sort of natural comfort with an interest in technology. And of course, I didn't know that as a kid. Um, but as I got older and decided to um, 
you know, really think about which direction I want to take my career in, I found that uh, interest kind of bubbling back up. And I said, hey, you know what? I definitely want to go into something um, where uh, really interesting entrepreneurs are using technology to improve people's lives. And that was as simple as um, that was really as simple as that. And so after I left college, um, I did go into investment banking, which was a great foundational you know, learning environment. I um, met a ton of really interesting people, got to cover really interesting companies, all in technology uh, and media. Um, and then I found out, you know, about myself that I really wanted to go to the company side and help to build and scale something. So I left banking and went to a digital health company called Everyday Health, uh, which was at the time I joined a small startup, about 50 people. And the whole premise was to use the power of the internet and data to bring consumers, patients, or caretakers um, the right health and wellness information, but also be able to have a platform to connect them to the right healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it got, a, you know, the, the company got bigger and more sophisticated, but there I really realized that I had this passion also for healthcare and, you know, how can we use technology to improve the lives of patients or caretakers um, because it's so, you know, personal to me, personal, to, I think, to everyone. And so, um, from there, I actually uh, spent about nine years at that company, which was a long time, particularly in the world of startups. <laughs> but like um, years, oh my god! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, and it was fantastic because every year it was different and challenging. And we eventually grew the company into um, a 750-person company. Wow. We did an IPO, so we were public for a couple of years. Um, and then we ended up selling it opportunistically to a, a really uh, fantastic strategic buyer. Um, and that's at the point at which I uh, left. And I said, hey, I want to just sort of see what else there is to do in the world. And, you know, continuing to hone in on this thesis of disruptive technologies and, um, you know, finding a company with a mission that I could really get behind. And so I took a little bit of a detour um, more into diversified media, and I was the CFO at Refinery29 for about three years, and uh, you probably know the company, um, but, you know, it was a brand that I had uh, really loved, and I consumed all the content even before I ever thought of, you know, working there, and I think that, again, using the power of technology content um, distribution channels and, you know, using digital technologies to bring in real life events and content to anyone really um, all around this mission of elevating underrepresented voices was something that I thought was super cool. So I went there for a few years um, and then helped to, to eventually merge that company as well. Um, and then I came to another crossroads and I just said, Hey, you know, now's another inflection point and a great opportunity to think about uh, what I want to do. And I really wanted to get back into healthcare. I really wanted to go back into a growth environment, as you know, Brittany, um, high, you know, high growth, fast paced environments with white space. I mean, it's, you know, a little daunting, but it's also a lot of fun. And yeah. so I eventually found my way to where I am now, which is Tomorrow Life Sciences. Um, and I'm having a blast uh, here. Amazing. Before we get into what Tomorrow Life Sciences is, a quick question about um, you know, your background with this investment banking and then digital health and then media, you know, something we see in femtech is that um, for, I call it the femtech trifecta. So really successful women's health and wellness companies, they have a great product. They have a community that they're building of their uh, users. 
and then they have um, education. And now this is a lot to ask for from startups and from founders. Like you should probably only be, most tech companies only have to worry about their product. But in femtech, you need to also usually educate women on like, hey, you're, that symptom is actually menopause <laughs> or this is normal or you're not the only one. And then also there's that community factor because even if you tell them the rates of how common this is, a lot of women want to be in these community groups where they can talk with other women experiencing the same things. And so um, you have like this really perfect background for building a, a, a trifecta. Um, so <laughs> have you seen that in the women's health and wellness space? Like that there's like this like media events, community component, education along with the product? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and thank you for the kind words. I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that um, I think having a great product or service is a bit you know, like table stakes, right? You have to have that. Um, but what you said about community and education, it's so important. Um, I'll just take those separately. I think a lot of the topics that are addressed in femtech or women's health, um, and especially as it relates to what I'm doing at tomorrow, which is around fertility and reproductive health. I mean, some of these topics were taboo topics for a long time. And um, I mean, I have a ton of friends who have had their own fertility um, stories and, um, you know, challenges. And I think maybe even five years ago, you know, even my friends were sort of ashamed to say like, oh, I had a miscarriage or I don't think I can have a baby because, you know, it was, it was almost like something was wrong with their bodies and they didn't want to talk about it. And I think it, there's a sort of acceptance around that was still low, I think, in our society. And so, you know, I think that's one thing that we've shown a lot of progress in. And I'm really proud to say that, like, gosh, now we, you know, not a week goes by without something around femtech or reproductive health and fertility yeah. or women's health. And so we've really, I'm really happy about that. But there still is this education piece around um, what does this really mean? You know, it, what's the data around it? What's the studies that show X, Y, Z? And how can we um, provide those tools and resources to women as they're, you know, thinking about these topics or going through these um, uh, issues themselves? And then on the community piece, I think it's so true. I mean, particularly when it comes to women, I think, you know, when you're going through one of these um, health um, moments, you know, you're actively looking for information, you're reading all the books you can, you're talking to the doctors, you're talking to the right people. But there's this level of trust that I think women have when they speak to another woman going through the same thing or having gone through that, you know, same situation. And it almost means as much, if not more, um, from what the experts have to say. Yep. So I, I, I do see that. And I think, um, you know, the, the power of that community and the power of, quite frankly, using technology to bring those communities together uh, mm -hmm. is really powerful. Yeah, especially if the other women in the community look like them, right? So I know, yes. especially in the Black community, you know, there's this historical distrust in the healthcare system for pretty good reasons. And, you know, so when you have one Black woman talking to another one about her fibroids and how common those are, uterine fibroids in the Black women's community and treatments available, like when you can get a referral um, you know, from another woman that looks like you, you're more likely to be inclined to, if they trust that company, I can trust that company, you know? Absolutely. I completely agree with that. Well, let's get into tomorrow. Life sciences. Tell us, what is that? 
So Tomorrow Life Sciences is a fertility tech company. It started about three years ago um, by three founders who have been sort of serial entrepreneurs in New York um, with with non-fertility backgrounds, actually. They um, were from marketing and advertising, data sciences, um, a hospitality venture at one point. And um, they, you know, it's interesting. They had a conversation with a woman who they used to work with. And, you know, it's just a general catch up and they were, you know, um, asking her how she was doing. And at the end of the meeting, she said to them, uh, you know, guys, I just want you to know that I got my eggs frozen and I'm really, really happy about that. And, you know, this was a very smart, intelligent, sophisticated New Yorker, um, you know, executive woman. And they started asking her a bunch of questions about it. And she had the answers, you know, right then and there, she knew everything. And then they asked her, well, do you know how your eggs are being stored? Like, how are they being cared for? And it was the one question that she got stumped. And she's like, I actually don't know that. And so, you know, out of sheer curiosity, the founders started looking into this. And what they realized um, was that fertility clinics around the world are currently using manual, outdated processes to store the frozen eggs embryos that will eventually be at the heart of every IVF birth. So complete lack of technology. We're talking about steel tanks, handwritten labels with Sharpie markers used to write patients' names to identify the vials. Um, you, you know, you're laughing, right? Because you, you can see the risk in that. Um, you know, these tanks have to be topped off manually by uh, staff in the clinics every day, every week. They have to go and basically look with their eye and say, oh, the liquid nitrogen level is a little low. Well, you should fill that back up. And then these are just stored in the clinics themselves, and, and they take up a lot of space. Some of them are in closets, under desks, um, you know, really just stored wherever they have space. And uh, and then in terms of monitoring, there is no technology to monitor these tanks. So again, it's all physical, it's very manual, it's very analog, it's very outdated. And, um, you know, I think what's interesting and that many people may not know is that IVF was first developed in the barnyard with animal husbandry. So literally for cattle breeding and horse breeding. And this is the storage method that was used back then, um, <laughs> which was only about, yeah, which was only about 50 years ago, actually. So, you know, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that long ago. Um, but then when IVF was being uh, was uh, done in humans, this was the storage, quote unquote, system that moved, you know, into the IVF clinics. And so that's how they've been doing it. So when the founders heard about this, they said, oh, my gosh, this is a problem because um, why can't we leverage technology and the power of the ability to be able to monitor these things remotely, to have sensors on these tanks, to have uh, you know, real unique identifiers with RFID chips instead of Avery written, you know, Avery labels with the handwritten names on them. Um, and there's just a dramatic risk reduction when you're thinking about moving from a manual process to an automated one. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I think that what we're doing is very sophisticated and our technology solution is sophisticated, but the problem that we're trying to solve is not rocket science, right? It's, it's a no brainer of how do we just, you know, help these clinics around the world, um, adopt this new technology and quite frankly, just give them the peace of mind, uh, both to the clinicians and the patients alike, the peace of mind that their egg embryos are safe and, you know, cared for properly until, uh, you know, they're ready to be used. Because do women have to pay an annual fee or something for the storage long-term? Yes. Yes. So, yeah, they're already paying for it. Um, so, you know, the clinics will charge for the actual procedure. Um, but then there's an annual storage fee that, that has to be paid. 
And so, um, and I just don't, you know, back to your education point, I, I just don't think that people know uh, necessarily to ask about this piece, right? Mm-hmm. I think at least just speaking anecdotally from the friends that I've had that gone through IVF, they go in there with their list of questions about the procedure, how much does this cost, what drugs do I have to take, how does the procedure actually work, who are you, doctor, you know, I've looked up your reputation in your lab, um, and they just don't know that they should ask about the storage and what happens after, right? What happens after, and are you, you know, where are they, and are they being looked after? And I, I, I'll tell you, when I first started talking to Jamar about um, coming here, I talked to one of my best friends from college who had gone through a number of rounds of IVF and thankfully she has two beautiful uh, boys now, um, both products of IVF. But I was telling her about this problem and kind of why I was interested in this company and why I was interested in making a difference. And she just was quiet and she looked at me and she goes, God, you know, I still have embryos left and I don't know if I'm done, you know, with my family building. I don't know. Uh, but I did not know about this. And she was really horrified. And she said, now I know I should ask about this. Um, And so it's not about saying that the clinics isn't doing anything wrong. I mean, they've been using what they have had, right? They've been doing what they've been doing with what they've had. And they've done tremendous work in terms of just, I mean, work that, you know, embryologists are heroes, right? I mean, they're doing incredible work that no one else really can. Um, so it's not uh, it's not that, but now there's an alternative, and so how can we uh, just help you know and bring them along into um, a safer environment? One hundred percent. So I just want to paint a picture <laughs> for some of our listeners. Um, so I can imagine exactly what you're describing because I am a PhD in genetics. I've worked in cancer cell labs, E. coli labs, you know, and so I. I'm literally, I know exactly what you're talking about because I would have the tank. You have to make sure the liquid nitrogen's filled in it. You open it up, the smoke comes out. So listeners, if you think about like Jurassic Park or something and the smoke and the music, <laughs> yeah. that's what happens. <laughs> and, you, and you have to wear these big gloves. Otherwise you'll burn yourself and you'll pull out this like, like container that has lots of little samples in there. And yeah, we just wrote on the side of them with Sharpie marker. <laughs> like that was, and yeah. there's actually a joke in, um, in like graduate students that like, if you're taking over somebody's project who just graduated, but if they were like, um, Chinese, there's a risk that their labels are in Chinese, you know? And so like, you know, so there's like, when you have it, when it's not barcodes, and it's handwriting, there's a run, running of the risk of somebody, you know, you have ethanol on your hand and you wipe it off and it's gone and you'll never know what that right. too was again, right? Um, and yeah. also the whole freeze-thaw issue. Do you, um, because I think uh, our listeners may have heard about this freeze-thaw issue in terms of the vaccine, like, oh, once the, vac- you know, the COVID-19 vaccine is thawed out, they, they, you know, they're looking for arms to put it in. Well, it's, is that the same for eggs? Like either you can't freeze thaw them, right? It would not be good for the eggs. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, I, so first of all, I think it's, um, I think it's great, but it's, it's kind of funny how cold chain management has become a sexy topic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> recently, <laughs> but that, but it really is complex and it, and it does, it can, it can um, destabilize, you know, the vaccine and, and other, um, other things, but as it relates to eggs and embryos, I mean, particularly embryos, they they are a delicate, if not more delicate than a snowflake, 
right? And I, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever seen a snowflake land on your arm, but it melts immediately. It's gone. And it's very similar. And so the, you cannot have uh, these specimens outside of cryogenic temperatures unless you're, you know, going through a thaw process and actually transferring the embryo into the um, individual. Uh, but, you know, what's, what's damaging or potentially damaging, I guess, is that when you're pulling those specimens out of the doer, which is the name for the steel tank, and you're looking around for, you know, melanie specimen, and you, you know, it takes you a couple minutes. And these embryologists are very skilled; they're very fast. Uh, but still, you know, ambient temperatures are going into the tank. And meanwhile, there's the smoke, the Jurassic Park smoke coming out that's, you know, fogging your vision, and you're looking for the right one. And so it does take time. And so um, it's been it's hard to know whether that is actually damaging or not to the specimen. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think that. Um, you the 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 care and that needs to be taken for these specimens the most precious and certainly the most emotional cells um you know it it is there is a sort of no fail situation here um Mm -hmm. and and everyone at tomorrow takes this very seriously and and as the clinicians and the clinics do as well um right because this is they are so delicate and so fragile um and when you think about like the the freeze-thawing issue um, when you think about the embryo uh, or the egg, um, what happens is, you know, it starts to develop ice crystals, which are sharp, which can hurt the cell. So that's kind of just a simple way to think about um, think about that. But, you know, with tomorrow, with the technology, I mean, with the unique identification, we have, a, you know, robotics that work with our software that basically says, like, no, we want Melanie's specimen. She's here today for her, you know, transfer. The machine will pick the right one. It'll check with the unique identification code to make sure that it's mine and not anybody else's. It'll take that one out and save temperatures and it will never leave that sort of cryogenic safe environment. Yeah. So paint the picture for me. You know, I'm imagining me in my lab. I'll have to find a picture. I have pictures of me, uh, listeners. I'll post it on social of me and my nitrogen tanks and stuff, but with these (laughs) giant orange gloves that were clunky and blah, blah, blah. But like paint the picture for us. What is the tomorrow system look like? Is it a, you know, sort of giant robot? Like, does it have a name? Is it a box? (laughs) Like, what does it look like? Yeah, so it's it's pretty big. Uh, it is a robot. And uh, funny story that when I first joined this company, I, I have a son, um, a, a little guy, he's four years old. And when I told him I was joining this company, and I brought him to the office, this was pre-COVID, and I showed him the robot, and he goes, "Mommy, robots!" You know, <laughs> it was pretty awesome. But uh, but yeah, it's it's a big uh, it's, it's a hardware and software combination. Um, so there's a big freezer tank. Um, and if you've worked in healthcare, as Brittany, I'm sure you know these, um, but the really large freezer tanks um, that are used in other, you know, tissue banks and biorepositories around the world. So we have that. Then we have a robotic arm that sits on top that will, you know, goes up and down and goes into the tank to find the correct specimen. And then we have a user, um, a screen that's a touch screen for the user to, uh, interact with our software and the software controls the whole thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you can picture in a clinic, this sits in the clinic, this uh, essentially removes 25, about 25 of those steel tanks, um, So, which is great. You, the clinic can get that space back. And all of those specimens can go into the Tomorrow platform. And the embryologist uh, will, you know, walk right up to the screen, you know, follow our super easy-to-use user interface, and it just says such and such patient is here today. Um, and then the automatic, you know, robotics will go in and pull the right specimen out. We'll double check it and then they're ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then the other piece, which is so compelling, is the constant 24-7 remote monitoring of the environment. And so we're using uh, a lot of data to do predictive analytics. That If we see um, that someone's robot, for example, perhaps the environment is getting warmer uh, and we can see that the um, temperature is degrading by a fraction of a degree, right? Our team can actually flag that um, and say, hey, you know, let's fix this or let's uh, notify the clinic before something goes wrong. And um, I think, you know, unfortunately, there have been instances, real life instances of things going wrong in these clinics. Um, so in 2018, there were two clinics, one in San Francisco, one in Cleveland, that coincidentally within, I think, a week of each other had uh, disasters that um, unfortunately led to the loss of thousands and thousands of eggs and embryos. So, um, and you know, I think that technology and automation should really reduce the risk of those events happening. Um, and then just, you know, another instance that is, is a real thing that happens is uh, the wrong embryo being transferred into the wrong person. How often so, does that happen? You know, I've only heard this anecdotally happen, um, but the, but it has happened. And I actually know somebody uh, in my own community that it's happened to. Um, so it can be devastating. It's devastating, really. Yeah, absolutely. And when you were talking about those um, natural disasters, I was actually going to ask you about that. Is, be, is our, you know, and please tell me like the old tech and then versus your robot, like, is it dependent upon electricity? Because I know that um, my PhD program at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, we have hurricanes. So we have generator, right. generator upon generator. Um, but they, you know, at one point they kept all the, you know, mice in the basement and they flooded and Hurricane Harvey, you know, like, and everyone lost their experiments and blah, blah, blah. And so um, is, what's the electricity dependence on the old tech and versus your robot? Yeah, so the old tech really was not dependent on um, electricity, but it was uh, very vulnerable to any sort of, you know, natural disaster because these tanks, again, they were manually um, kept up and maintained. A lot of the records are in three ring binders or spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, um, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, it's fine, Brittany, because in, in a lot of other parts of healthcare too, not just in this world that, um, that tomorrow is playing in, but I still go to my, you know, primary care physician and there's still folders, you know, behind the receptionist desk. And I'm like, what, what is happening right now? Why is it still in a folder on a piece of paper? So, yeah. you know, I think we have a, a, a lot to, uh, improve upon there um, in general. Uh, but yeah, so the old tech was really, you know, manual, um, you know, paper records, very little redundancy or backup, uh, certainly not uh, reliant on cloud-based technology or any sort of tech monitoring. Um, actually, you know, when we all were locked down for COVID, uh, a lot of our fertility clinic partners struggled with, you know, how do I get in there? How do I maintain the environment in these things? How do I even check up on them? Because, you know, we're locked down. And, you know, everybody managed to get through it. But um, in some ways, people looked at the, the new technology that tomorrow's offering um, in a way as a disaster recovery solution. Uh, because our solution does not require that physical labor to be present to upkeep the, the environment. So um, our system in any sort of natural disaster can live without electricity for up to two weeks. Um, 
So that's great. And then, of course, we have the the remote monitoring that's all cloud based that, you know, we can um, see something before it happens, hopefully, uh, in terms of the overall environment itself. Um, so it really is, um, you know, a preventative measure, I think, yeah. to move to this new tech. Absolutely. Well, it sounds so high tech, like such a jump <laughs> from the evolution. <laughs> um, is it going to affect the prices for women who want to store their eggs or embryos? You know, each fertility clinic uh, is different in terms of how they currently work with their patients. Um, and so, you know, depending on the clinic, depending on the geography, uh, the prices can range. Um, but what we what we know is, you know, tomorrow contracts with the fertility clinic itself. Um, and we say, look, you know, we'll help you to um, adopt this and implement this. And we could even work with you to communicate with your patients about why this is uh, compelling and interesting and why they should care about this. Um, but really the relationship there is between the clinic and the patient. So in some instances, um, you know, fertility clinics may revisit their pricing, um, but I, I don't, uh, we don't really um, do that at tomorrow. Um, but I will say that just from a consumer standpoint, I think if I were given a choice, um, you know, pay X dollars more for technology-based solution versus the outdated old tech, um, I think I would do it. I think that there's some elasticity there, you know, in terms of what people are willing to pay for. Um, and I don't know how much that is. And um, certainly uh, we're thinking about doing some consumer insights around that to just understand that better. But I do think that conceptually, if you ask a woman who has just undergone this, you know, quite expensive procedure, um, quite emotional procedure, uh, or is even thinking about doing this, right? That she's probably going to want to ask herself, like, which solution would I would would I have, and is it worth it to me? And the answer probably is yes. Yeah, I am someone who I am not a brands lady. Like, I'm never going to buy an expensive purse. Like, I'm gonna buy my purse at Target, y'all. Okay, like, I don't need <laughs> name brand anything. But like in this scenario, hell yeah, you know, especially as somebody who's worked with the liquid nitrogen in the cells, and I know technicians, and I'm like, oh no, I would much rather have a robot touching this. <laughs> than anything yeah. else human error well it's like you know what 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 is the dollar amount or what's the value that you would put on peace of mind yeah you know yeah. I, I don't know i i think it's i think it's really important how many clinics are using tomorrow so we just commercially launched in january so we've spent like i said three years developing testing 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 working with embryologists actually we had a um a number of the leading u.s fertility clinics uh who partnered with us earlier on and we had their embryologists and lab directors in, and they actually gave us guidance on the product itself. Mm -hmm. um, so that was all really great. And we incorporated all that feedback. Uh, so it really is a system, I think, for embryologists that was built with the feedback from embryologists, right? Which I think is really cool. Um, but we just launched. So right now we're in three uh, fertility clinics in the U.S. We're going to be quickly expanding um, and onboarding additional clinics. By the end of the year, we should have uh, over 30 clinic sites on the Tomorrow technology, which will be really exciting. Um, and we're also looking to expand internationally, uh, first into the UK and other parts of Western Europe, likely next year. Um, but I don't know if you know this stat, Brittany, but um, only 9% of IVF activity happens in the US. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, when I said, I... I don't know if it's, uh, I was shocked when I figured that, when I found that out, only nine, nine percent. 
And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, you know, uh, economically, um, you know, it's been, car well, first of all, it's been carved out in the U.S. as an elective procedure for many, many years. And so that's part of it. And so, it's, you know, heavy cash transaction, which can be economically divisive. Um, but, you know, you have other parts of the world like the U.K. and Europe combined are about 27 percent of IVF volume. So three times the size of the U.S. Yeah. Um, other countries like, you know, within Europe, Spain is um, uh, has a lot of activity. Uh, Israel, um, you know, Japan, 20% of the market. China is huge, uh, not surprisingly, around 37%, I think it is. So, you know, and, and all of the clinics everywhere around the world, Brittany, are the same. They're on this old tech. Wow. So I think that there's an opportunity to really bring this like safety, security, and reliability to clinicians and patients everywhere. Um, so that's part of our strategy going forward is, you know, how how quickly can we scale to just help as many people as we can. You know, that's really interesting because um, listeners, if you don't know this, most tech companies like want to come to the US because our market is so big, right? I talk to founders every single day that are in Berlin or London or Paris or wherever. And they're like, we have an idea, you know, we're going to come to the US and fundraise and launch. And I'm always like, what about Germany though? What about, you know, and yeah. we talk about <laughs> strategy and what it, what what's the right choice for them. But that's in the argument is always that the US is the biggest market, right? And so that's so interesting that IVF is actually like, you in comparison. Yeah. You know. Wow. Yeah. What are some of the future goals for tomorrow? Well, I certainly think it's that international expansion and, you know, again, helping to just um, bring this technology to serve patients everywhere, uh, or, you know, or anybody thinking about this. Um, I do think that there are some really interesting adjacencies that the company could go into, um, you know, just transferring our technology, right? Because essentially what it is, is is, uh, you know, a lot of expertise around specimen management. Um, we have the embryologists on staff. We have cryotechnicians on staff. We have, you know, cryobiologists, people who've run major biorepositories in our team. So I do think there's an opportunity to potentially look at other areas where we could be helpful. Um, just to think of a couple of, of things, cord blood uh, is an interesting one. Yeah. What are they, what are they storing cord blood? And this is when listeners, you, know, you have a baby, you can pay for them to save like the, I don't know if they save the plus the, just the cord or the whole placenta. I'm not sure, but it's something about saving something so that maybe your baby in the future could use the stem cells from it. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, I mean, they have similar um, management challenges there and um, there's, you know, so I think we can just do it. I think we can just sort of do what they're doing, but do it better. Um, and, you know, I think there's also evidence, uh, you know, and this is a really interesting topic uh, around the use of embryonic stem cells for regenerative purposes. Um, so, you know, there's, that can get a, a bit hairy in terms of what you, your, you know, sort of politics and all of that. But I do think that there's some um, research that shows that there could be regenerative, you know, purposes, uh, uses for, for embryonic stem cells as well. Um, and then that kind of leads me to the other adjacency, which is, you know, possibly doing something in cell and gene therapy. Um, mm -hmm. You know, again, could we transfer our technology there? Uh, so those are some of the, I think, bigger visionary items. I do think as uh, this might sound aspirational, but one of the things that we um, really care about at Tomorrow um, is not only the mission of safeguarding these, you know, precious cells, 
but how do we really get to a place where we're helping the overall industry to democratize IVF or fertility services? Um, and that means, you know, the use of technology and innovation to really drive down prices. And I think we can do that. I think we can be part of that. I think it's going to involve a lot of ecosystem players to help uh, push that movement. But I think that um, when you're looking at one in eight people need some sort of assistance from a physician to have a child, that's a lot. That's verging on talking about demography. And I think at that level of prevalence, um, making a small impact is going to actually be a huge one. And so if we can somehow, again, use technology and innovation to drive down um, the prices, drive up access to this kind of care, I mean, that's kind of the ultimate um, aspiration. Yeah. Love it. And, you know, I personally hope that you become such a big, successful company that the prices are cheap enough or you have enough like new versions and maybe people need to donate the old versions away. Please send them to academia <laughs> because, you know, yeah. academia, we would have these precious, precious cell lines. Sometimes I worked in an Alzheimer's right. lab. We on cells, man, you only unthawed those at least twice and then that's it, you know, and then you got to grow more mm. and like refree, like, oh, please, please <laughs> donate to academia. We, especially small liberal arts colleges, like I went to an undergrad, like we didn't have all the fancy stuff. And so, um, yeah, donate the hack. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's such a good idea. Um, we would love to do that actually. And we are talking to, uh, not just fertility clinics, um, but some of the, uh, academic institutions. We're talking to Stanford, Cornell, and others. Um, and, and look, we just really want to make an impact however we can. And again, kind of going full circle back to the education and awareness piece that we first touched on. You know, I think that um, any of these uh, areas where we can make a, make an impact, um, we would like to do. And you know, the other thing I wanted to, to tell you about Brittany is that you know we're very focused on. STEM and motivating people to stay in STEM and women particularly to, to, you know, be motivated to pursue careers in STEM. And I think that, uh, again, working with academia or working with organizations to just like share what we're doing and the impact that it can have, I think could be really powerful. 100%. I think that there's a correlation between women getting into STEM and femtech increasing because women are in STEM. Yeah. They realize there's this problem. And now we are like empowered to be like, and I'm going to solve it. Right. Like, yeah. um, yeah. I'm a engineer. I'm a scientist. I'm, you know, I can, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to figure it out. Even if I don't know how, because I'm, you know, I have the scientific method in my head now, you know? Um, so, right. so Cool. We have two last questions for you that our listeners really love. The first one is we have a lot of aspiring undergrad and graduate students that want to work in femtech or start a femtech startup. So what's an area in women's health and wellness that still needs innovating? Oh, my goodness. So, well, certainly fertility and reproductive health, I think there's still so much to do there. Um, there are there's a handful of really interesting companies, but I think, you know, when people talk about fertility, you know, there's the, the companies that are focused on benefits and working with large companies to increase benefits. I think that's awesome. There's, you know, companies like Tomorrow that are focused on kind of the cryo storage and the specimen management piece. Um, but there's so much more that we can do in terms of fertility education, fertility content, um, the truth, right? Like, how do we really build that community and resources for people um, to find out you know, really valuable information that I just don't think there's enough of right now. So that's one. Um, 
I think mental health is a big thing, particularly um, over the last 12 months. But I do think that, you know, when it comes to women in mental health, you know, and particularly different uh, communities within that, like, I think we do, um, there is a need for something that's a little bit more tailored to us. Um, versus like a broad solution for everyone. Um, and there's a lot of uh, work there, I think that could be really important. Absolutely. I um, I know there was a statistic that recently came out about the uh, like very significant spike in alcohol related liver disease in women. And they are saying, you know, the first, you know, guesses the scientific community has is that the pandemic has been really freaking stressful on everybody, but in particular women, like the, we have the data on women are losing their jobs more. Women are not going back into the workforce more. Women are taking care of the kids. Like women are taking care of their parents, like, you know, and so they are, you know, assuming that like that stress is just leading women to drink beyond, normal rates and like, it's just spiking. And so 110%, you know, I, I am a, you know, believe alcoholism is its own genetic disorder and its own thing, but there is something to be said about what is women's mental health need, right. That we are self soothing and self-medicating through poison, you know, to get through it. So hundred percent, hundred percent. Absolutely. Um, and then our last question is what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to Funding, funding, funding. (laughs) Um, I know I'm a finance oriented person. So of course, that's the first thing I say. But no, I I really mean it. You know, there's a there's a lot of statistics out there as well. 2% of VC funding last year went to women, uh, women led companies. And I'm not even talking about femtech within that. We're talking about women led, women focused companies. That is too low, way, way, way too low. Um, and I think that there needs to be more attention and more focus on this because there are so many opportunities to impact half the world's population. <laughs> and like you said, you know, women are the chief medical officers of their homes, of their lives, of their family and of their parents and their kids and, and friends. And um, I think that you can have the best idea and the best, you know, community and the product and the, uh, all the things we talked about. But we need people to support those women starting these companies. And that means capital. So I do think that if there are listeners who are, you know, maybe you don't have a great idea to start your own company, but you're in a position where maybe you can work at a fund or you can work at an investment company, or you can even, um, you know, help somebody do their Kickstarter or their GoFundMe, right? Like all of these things, it's going to, it's going to make, we just have to take one step at a time, Brittany. And like, I think the more money that we can put into the, the hands of these uh, future entrepreneurs, I think the better. Yeah. And having worked in private equity, you know, like there's a lot of money in the world, right? Like I, I grew up a lot of money. Wealthy. I did not, I had no comprehension of like money, I guess. And when I got into fundraising for my first startup and people were wiring me in 50 K and they were like, it sounds like a good idea. And I'm like, wait, they just have like that much money, like, no, and it was shocking me, kept shocking me. And then I became a venture capitalist and forget it. I learned about family offices and I was like, oh my God, there's a lot of money out here, you know? And so now I'm unapologetically stomping my feet saying fund us because I'm, you know, I know it's not a school fundraiser from parents who don't have money. It's literally like they're the money's there. You know, we just have to find the funnels to get here. Right. 
there's so much money that uh, even, I mean, there's, if you look at the stats from last year during COVID, I mean, private equity and venture capital, there's so much money that people want, that they want to put to work, right? And they're finding, they're looking for ways to invest. Um, and so I think that uh, don't, you know, don't get discouraged, right? And I think to your point about the the platforms, um, you know, one of the things that has impressed me so much about you, Brittany, is that you are in a position where you have a platform, you have this great podcast, and you're opening the door for other women to talk about what they're doing and to share that because that you need that awareness mm-hmm. also to drive interest and drive more attention. And I and I, I love that you're um, not just mentoring these these people, but you're actually using your platform to give them a voice. And so I think those two things combined is just so, so powerful. And that's how we're going to change those numbers. Well, if anyone out there has lots of money and you want to fund me, (laughs) (laughs) Focus is a 501c3 nonprofit. And we are um, also raising a venture fund because we know like this is, it's not only the right thing to do, but like, if you want to build wealth, like invest in women's health, like you know, invest in tomorrow life sciences because every lab in the world is using literally archaic liquid nitrogen <laughs> tanks and needs a robot. So like make your money in women's health, just give it to me. I'll distribute it. Um, and we'll go from there. Right? Here, here. Awesome. Well, to that. You are amazing. Melanie, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Brittany. It was so great to be here and catch up with you. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to my interview with Melanie Goldie, the COO and CFO of Tomorrow Life Sciences. By the year 2100, 300 million people will owe their lives to in vitro fertilization. Tomorrow's technology will help make that possible. Tomorrow's solution significantly reduces the risk of losing or misidentifying the eggs and embryos used in IVF. As promised, I will be posting a picture of me working with liquid nitrogen cell storage containers, so be sure to follow us on social media at Femtech Focus to see those. To learn more about Tomorrow Storage Technology, visit their website at tomorrow.org. That's T-M-R-W dot org. Alrighty, Fem fans, thank you so much for listening to the episode today. Please subscribe to the show, share it with a friend, and write a positive review. That would mean so much to us and help us get even more listeners from around the world. Also, if you're like, I need more of this Femtech in my life, then be sure to subscribe to our newsletter. You can do that at femtechfocus.org. While you're there, you can join our virtual community and mingle with a thousand other Femtech founders from around the world. Also, please consider making a donation and better yet, make it a monthly recurring donation because Femtech Focus is a 501c3 nonprofit and relies on your donations to operate. We have lots of events like Monday night listening parties. We have biweekly workshops for founders and a monthly book club. So check all that out. Subscribe to our newsletter, follow us on social, and you will be in the know. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.